to the Progress City Radio Hour, our town hall. My name is Michael Crawford. With me, as always, Jeff Crawford. Jeff, how are you doing today? I am doing wonderful. It's spring. Spring has sprung here in North Carolina. Uh, it's, you know, we live in the woods. It's, it feels very fantasy land. And we're in week three of four of fantasy land. What a treat. Yes, very much so. Our biggest exploration yet. So it's very exciting. And we're kicking things off with uh, part one of what will be a two-part interview. And this month we are talking, as we have in our other Fantasyland episodes, to Mr. Tom K. Morris, historian, imagineer, man of many hats. Uh, Jeff, this was quite an interview. Yes, we uh, sat down with Tom three different times. Uh, he just the record. <laughs> yes, this is the record. He he kept telling us stories of so many projects he's involved in, and then on top of that, you know, we wanted to ask him about Fantasyland. You've already heard that he had a great, you know, just kind of critical eye of Fantasyland. He was there as a fan, and then he is working uh, on learning. And publishing, hopefully, uh, wed history. So there's just a ton of stuff that we're interested in that we needed to talk to Tom about. That's right. He's somebody whose work uh, requires a lot of examination, uh, many decades worth of examination. He started so young and worked on so many projects, as you will hear, that are, you know, keystone projects of the Imagineering playbook, but also his post-Imagineering work as a researcher also deserves close examination. So there is so much to talk about. That's right. And we didn't even talk to him really about uh, the Sleeping Beauty castle he designed in Disneyland Paris, which was a major part of his body of work. So kudos to him for that. Uh, there are other interviews you can listen to there where he talks in detail about that. We kind of felt like that had been, uh, talked about a lot but it is a it's a beautiful castle michael oh it absolutely is and i have not yet been fortunate enough to visit but everybody i know who has speaks so highly of it but as you said you know we wanted to try and stay away from things that have been discussed quite a bit on other podcasts and dig into some uh, different things you may not have heard about yet and so uh, that we did. So without further ado, let's see what Tom Morris has to say. Today, we'd like to welcome Mr. Tom Morris. Tom, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Glad to be here. Oh, we're glad to have you. Excited. There's so much to talk about. Um but I wanted to start out at the beginning for you, your childhood paper route, which turned out to be a very fruitful one <laughs> and that it helped lead to your career at Disney. I just wondered if you would just start off by telling us a little about Jack Sayers, who was a really important person in Disney history that people might not know. Yeah, he was an important person in Disney history and he was on my paper route and I didn't know it. I didn't know who Jack Sayers was. I knew there was a guy named Jack Sayers on my paper route because that's what the right. form said when I came to collect money every month. Um, but one um, fortuitous 
evening when I came by to collect the money, I noticed there was a an interesting, unusual new table that he had in his patio. And that table was uh, uh, about a six foot diameter white plexiglass clock that said Timex on it with mm-hmm. a little Roman numeral indices on it. And I thought, gosh, that sure looks like the one on the clock tower at Disneyland <laughs> on, on the train station. And hmm. so I asked him and um, he said, yeah, you know, good eye, something like that. And he said, you know, I'm the vice president of um, sales or lessee relations, whatever it was that he told me at the time. And I said, well, you know what? I'm going to Disney World in a few weeks or a couple of weeks. It wasn't, it wasn't long before I went there. Um, I'm going to Disney World. Do you work there too? <laughs> he said, well, <laughs> I sure do. You know, I, I'm going there too. When are you going? <laughs> and uh, so I told him, you know, I think he was just shocked like everyone was. And I wasn't sure I was going either, you know, but <laughs> now that I opened up my yeah. mouth, I guess I was. Um, and he said, oh, he would take, you know, he'd make sure that there'd be someone out there to pick me up and take me there and take me around. Um, so very kindly he did. And he had uh, Jack Lindquist's secretary, whose name was Joanne Modica. Um, well, first, first someone picked me up at the airport, if you could call it an airport. Uh, <laughs> Quonset hut. <laughs> yeah. I don't remember the Quonset hut part of it as much as I remember. It was like a stucco. It looked like someone's home almost, you know, it was like, oh, or like okay. a <laughs> rental car, a second tier rental car. Um, yeah. You can see somewhere, you know, um, with a few terminals and, you know, so we land there and, someone was there to pick me up shockingly i was scared to death you know that i went through with this thing and what if there's no one there to pick me up but there was someone there to pick me (laughs) up and i wish i knew who that was um it took me in a truck i believe or a van and then i just remember when are we going to get there when because it just seemed like where are we (laughs) (laughs) i thought that this place was near orlando (laughs) You know, did, I, did we land at the wrong airport is, you know, or is it in Miami or something? Uh, it seemed like a two hour drive, but I'm sure it wasn't. Um, and I was driven to the uh, Polynesian Hotel. And there I was met by someone. A pro- it could have been the um, VIP hostess or it could have been one of the PR guys. I remember it as being a guy named Bob Jackson, but it may not have been because in doing my own research on this, it's like, well, he left just before, but maybe they brought him back for that. Hmm, Yeah. So they took me to this room that was in the Polynesian hotel lobby, just off the lobby where the shop is on the left, up Hmm. closer to the swimming pool. And there were a whole bunch of people in there and teletype machines or all these machines, you know, um, I don't know what they were, you know, with a ticker news coming off of it, (laughs) I guess. And uh, a few people from some newspapers interviewed me 
And I'm like, when are we going to the park? <laughs> I was right. telling my story. <laughs> uh, eventually, the VIP tour guide came by. I should have done my homework for this. Uh, I forgot we were talking about Walt Disney World. Duh. Because um, I did find the name of the VIP hostess who took me oh, on the wow. rail really? and over to the Magic Kingdom and into the Magic Kingdom. And um, I think into City Hall. And now I wonder whether I signed a book or not. Maybe I did. Maybe I didn't. Um, I think I talked maybe to a couple more people or reporters in City Hall. It's funny how I freshly remember certain things and then other things. I'm Oh, yeah. What happened totally. in this hour between lunch and when I went on the Skyway? Um, so there was still quite a bit of like, I just want to go on the haunted mansion. All <laughs> right. <laughs> and I was handed off to Joanne Modica and Joanne was very nice woman. And she was um, Jacqueline Quist's secretary. And so she had the poor duty of taking me around and um, we went up main street and into Adventureland and onto the Jungle Cruise, I think was the first attraction that we went on. And uh, then the Tiki Room. And I remember being impressed by the huge Tiki Room there and the, um, what did they call it? The Ceremonial House. Mm -hmm. And the, I seem to recall waterfalls and a big water feature out in front of that that may not be there anymore. And I think we went in the tree house and then we went, I don't know, maybe we went to the Haunted Mansion first. That sounds more likely. <laughs> <laughs> And there was nobody, nobody, you know, there was hardly anyone there in the park to begin with. Oh, right, I look yeah. at the photos and it's like a, you know, a school day for sure. Um, and while the Jungle Cruise had a full boat and the Tiki Room, you know, I think may have been pretty full, we went to the Haunted Mansion and there was no one there. I mean, just literally nobody wow. in the Haunted Mansion. And so I said, can I take will you let me take flash pictures? And they're like, sure. So I, now I only had you know, a certain number of pictures, so I didn't take advantage of that, but I took a picture in the stretching room and I took a picture in of the singing bus, I think. Oh, cool. And, um, Ooh, I got to do that, you know, and hall of presidents. And, um, you know, we looked through the shops and in, in Liberty square and then went to Fantasyland, had lunch, I had lunch with Joanne Modica and, you know, people would stop by and I don't know who they were. I'd love to know now who they were. Right, yeah. Right. yeah. Who knows? Um, Roy Disney strolling by. Yeah, I would yeah. add my eye out for Roy Disney because I knew what he looked like, but he was sicker. Oh yeah. So uh, he wasn't even there that day. I, he was at his Bay Hill place. I think he didn't go out there that day. I remember going on the Skyway. It's a small world. Peter Pan was not open. Um, 20,000 Leagues was not open. Snow White was awesome. Well, I think went on both sides of Mr. Toad. Um, the Skyway was interesting because it had that bend, you know, that turn right. in it. Oh, and yeah. there was nothing in Tomorrowland. Nothing. Right. I think right. the, um, <laughs> Dead end. Maybe the Grand Prix was going, I think. Um, but I think the pink and orange fences were up. Um, cause you could not go into the center of 
Fantasyland or Tomorrowland. And I took a picture of Tomorrowland from Main Street and they were still building, like it looked like they were still building the back part of um, the Circle Vision. Hmm. Uh, yeah, I think the back uh, the back part of, of If You Had Wings was a later yeah. addition. Yeah. Um, but the moon ride wasn't ready and the Circle Vision wasn't ready. Nothing in Tomorrowland, just the Skyway Station was it. And then uh, I remember they kept the, like it, it was six o'clock, the park closed, or maybe it was five. I don't know what time it closed, but the park stayed open so you could shop. And I remember thinking, well, that's different than Disneyland, but maybe it wasn't. But um, all the shops were going and I bought whatever my $5 that I probably had. <laughs> yeah. Stuff, um, that I mostly don't have anymore. And we went back to the Polynesian Hotel and there was a press conference upstairs in the balcony area where there's now just kind of like, you know, resting, you know, like mm-hmm. a, a lounging area. And, but they had seats set up and it was a press conference. And I think it was Card Walker who was doing the talking, but I didn't know who those people were. Hmm. Yeah. Um, but he was talking about the first day, the attendance. Uh, we would have liked to have had Roy Disney here, but he's got a terrible cold today. So he's not able to join us. Um, and it was, I think, just some stats, you know, facts and figures about how many people showed up, the first family, their name. <laughs> right. There's no traffic, you know, the traffic jams. They were probably, you know, shaking in their boots because while they purposely opened on October 1st to avoid crowds. I don't think they were expecting such a, you know, a non turnout. <laughs> right, right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that I've read that they were very worried for several weeks until the Thanksgiving holiday came by. Um, then the last thing, Oh, <laughs> this is, this is where you all kill me. Um, they said, you know, um, we know that we have to get you back to the airport because you have to go on because you're going to be met by your aunt and uncle in Atlanta, which was true. Uh-huh. And um, so, but, you know, if you want, you can stay here. We'll give you a room at the Polynesian hotel. And I showered up there. I do remember, you know, cleaning up and showering at the poly. And, wow. um, and I'm like, you know, it was too, overwhelming for me and i wasn't i didn't have enough chutzpah to say sure i'll take that That's you know a big decision i, I wouldn't age, know how yeah. to get a hold of my aunt and uncle you know um in right. Atlanta. and i don't know if they offered to call them and i was just like i didn't want to trouble you know i didn't want to trouble anybody sure right oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh I, man I, that's right i declined the offer to, to stay overnight but i had dinner at the at the restaurant that I couldn't pronounce then and probably still can't pronounce to this day, the Papayeta Bay or whatever. The Papayeta. Papayeta. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I had yeah. dinner there and, um, and I believe I was sitting next to Bob Allen. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Okay. And um, I thought it was afterwards, I thought it was J.B. Allen. Mm-hmm. Uh, then I since found out it couldn't have been JB Allen. He was fired for <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't think this happened. And then 
I was uh, reading, uh, you know, I follow, we're fr- um, Bob Allen Jr. and I are friends on Facebook, and he was mentioning his growing up in Newport. And this person who was next to me was talking about, oh, you grew up in, you know, we're from Newport too. We lived on the peninsula. We lived on the peninsula too. So there was that discussion that took place. And so for years I thought it was J.B. Allen, but it turned out to be Robert Allen, Bob Allen. Uh, oh, and then so I cool. met a slew of people and I, don't know who they all were. There was a long table, several long tables in there uh, with a lot of people and speeches were made and over my wow. head. Wow. Wow. Okay. Jet lagged or overwhelmed or worried about getting to the airport on time. Because uh, it was a night, you know, it was like a probably a nine o'clock or a 10 o'clock flight out. Man, so you had a real whirlwind yes. tour. Yeah. So I don't know if I met Marty Sklar or Dick Nunes. Or, I had long hair, so I don't know if I would have. <laughs> Dick Nunes wouldn't talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Um, Who's that hippie kid over there? Yeah. I mean, it wasn't real long, but I mean, it was it was longish. Disney long. Yeah, it was <laughs> yeah. definitely outside the uh, grooming standards. So... One day I'd like to find out who was there because there's there's got to be a you know there's got to be documents somewhere that say who sure a guest list or yeah. something yeah. That, yeah that's just wild to think of the amount of people that were probably in that room yeah of movers and shakers yeah yeah it's just uh, I met Bobbiani I know I met Bobbiani because he sent me a letter afterwards and sent oh, me cool. a medallion oh, wow. you know one of those opening day medallions. Yeah, because hmm. he was great friends with another person who was on my paper route. Yeah, <laughs> hmm. <laughs> so it turned out to be a very profitable paper. That's right. There was also having nothing to do with the trip to Florida, but Thurl Ravenscroft was on my paper route. Oh yes. Oh, we love really? Thurl. We love Thurl. Yeah. That's amazing. And uh, now one of my buddies had a paper route in a different. Um, section and he had Raquel Welch on his paper route. So <laughs> I'll substitute for you if you need someone to. Yeah. Yeah. If you ever yeah. uh, need to take a day yeah. off. That never oh, happened, man. but there were definitely, Oh, Holly Holscher was on my paper route too. And she was um, in charge of the preview center. Uh, I mean, Sandy oh, okay. Quinn, I think was Sandy Quinn and Val Watson and, Holly Holscher, I believe, were kind of the people, from what I understand, who hmm. ran the preview center. And Holly came from Disneyland, and she lived with her folks on my paper route in my neighborhood the next block over. So a couple of years later, you get a job at Disneyland, and that leads you to a job at Imagineering as they're ramping up Epcot. And this is kind of a related question. I mean, you know, Epcot came to a time where a lot of these first generation Imagineers were taking their last lap. Um, who were some of the folks that stood out to you when you were just starting, you know, as a, you were a Disney fan, uh, maybe made you pinch yourself to be kind of in cahoots with. Yeah. Um, I w- you know, I was, I had mixed emotions about um, starting there while I was still in school, you know, going to Cal State Fullerton in the process of 
transferring to um, either UCLA or USC and probably UCLA. And um, I, you know, I, I, I just, you know, I, I wanted to jump at the chance and then, then the, an adult in my head said, you know, you should really finish school. And um, I talked with Tony Baxter and he said, well, the thing is though, if you finish school, the time you finish school will be 1982 and we'll be laying people off, you know, from all these projects. So that's right. good timing. So if you want to get some work experience, now's the time to do it. So yeah, that makes sense. I'll do this for a year or two. Huh. And um, so when I started, by then I knew who Claude Coates and Mark Davis. I mean, I, I knew some of those names even back when I was 12 years old, I knew like Ivan de Earl, anyone that was in the art of animation book, I knew. So right. Claude Coates, Mark Davis, um, folks like that, but I didn't, you know, know the, the Imagineers as much, but then through the course of working at Disneyland, I did. And so these were like, you know, rock stars or heroes to me, John Hench, um, you know, Marty Sklar, who wrote the Disneyland book, which was my, you know, Bible for all things Disneyland. And so um, it was a little intimidating. And also I very quickly got the sense that being a big fan was not a good idea, you know, not <laughs> outwardly showing it. I just got the vibe. Right. Um, yeah. And it may have been that someone, you know, told me that too. It's very likely that someone... Um, you know, said here, once you're here, you're going to want to just, you know, it's very businesslike and blah, 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 blah. Be cool, man. Yeah, be cool. <laughs> so I'm kind of, you know, kicking myself because I was a little too cool, maybe. And so I didn't, you know, I did sometimes um, venture into someone's office and ask them a question. And there were definitely the ones that you could tell were more receptive to it. Mm-hmm. Um and and then others were actually you know more aggressive like would come to your area like herb ryman you know would always go around and um and he he kind of trolled you a little bit you know which was kind of funny <laughs> what's that that you're yeah. working on there you know are you doing that on purpose <laughs> uh, you know just kind of kidding but um so Herb, you know, was always around and you could always talk to Herb and he would, you know, just come by and offer his opinion or tell you a story. Um, mm. John Hench did not seem, he was upstairs for one thing. Mm. Um, but, you know, I talked to him a few times and it wasn't very long before my um, office was very strategically located in the middle of the building on the way from upstairs um, offices on um, it was basically at the crossroads. Um, anyone going into the model shop just about had to go um, past my office huh. and it was, they were open cubicles. Uh, mm-hmm. They were divided, but you know, you had like low cubicle walls and people would always stick their head into my cubicle and everyone else's cubicle there. And as soon as I got assignments that were, you know, involved some design, which I wasn't expecting, you know, people would come by and, you know, Claude Coates would come by, Mark, uh, not Mark as much. Um, In fact, I think Mark had just left 
his, um, you know, he, he retired in 77, I think, or 78. And then they brought him back to work on World of Motion. And then I think he had just finished his gig on World of Motion when I came in. And, um, but I just, you know, there were a lot of art directors um, because there were 10 of us show set designers out there in this kind of bullpen area. And show set design was where the rubber hit the road. That's where um, concept sketches, models, architecture, show set design, all of that was kind of came together. So there were two places where you would, where art directors would go to see how things were coming along. And one was the model shop and one was show set design also upstairs in the architecture area. But the show set design seemed to always have a lot of traffic in it um, because you were either about to give something to the model shop for them to build or they were giving you something to draw up. And so a lot of back and forth always went on between show set design and the model shop. That's where a good, good deal of the design would take place. And I was working initially on World of Motion and Claude came by a couple of times, but other people, the World of Motion was the pavilion of never ending art directors in my mind right. at the time. So I knew Claude <laughs> yes. was in name, the art, the art director for the ride, but there were other people that seemed to have appropriated that title, at least in their own minds. And <laughs> they would come by and they would critique what I was doing. And um, one of them, I believe, was Bob Clatworthy, who is a, um, he, he's not known as being an Imagineer. He's, he's known as being probably an Oscar winning art director. He's a, he was a big time <laughs> art director. He was the art director of um, Pollyanna, for example. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. you know, one, of the, one of the Hall of Fame art directors and, um, he went on to do Bonnie and Clyde and some other films, but he was at Disney for about four or five years in the sixties. And then he was one of the people that they had brought in um, to work on Epcot. Uh, Jack Martin Smith was another one. All these guys seem to always be around um, our area. Colin Campbell, you know, was, was one that was often around and, and they'd be shooting the breeze with, you know, everyone. <laughs> And there was a lot of breeze shooting. <laughs> well, you talk about uh, World of Motion. I mean, uh, another name associated with that that you probably knew uh, was Ward Kimball. Yeah. Uh, who wasn't involved that much in Imagineering. Did you ever encounter him there? Yeah, yeah. He he came by a couple of times. I remember and looked at what I was doing. I think he was looking at the this balloon scene that I was working on. The first thing I was asked to work on on World of Motion was the used chariot salesman scene. I don't know what you mm-hmm. call that. Right, yeah. But um, they wanted a Chinese temple, a Chinese pagoda, and a Greek temple. So I, this is like one area that was not my forte at all. I had I had kind of like gotten I, in, in school, and the, the reason I got this job was because in – high school drafting. I had taken three years of high school drafting and I had done some, you know, themed design for houses and office buildings. And I did like an office building that was space age. And I did a vacation home that was ye old, you know, 
Tyrolean mm-hmm. fantasy land. And I think I did like a frontier thing, you know, and I probably did an adventure thing. Right. So all of a sudden, you know, here's a Greek temple and I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> uh, you know, and I have research books and everything. So I do a Greek temple and I do a, um, a Chinese pagoda and Ward, I know that Ward came by and looked at those and he was okay with them. And there was a, a guy um, who was in charge, a manager kind of guy in charge of the architects. And he came by and started critiquing what I was doing. And he said, you know, Greek temples never had an odd number of columns. <laughs> I didn't look at that section of Donald and Math Magic Land long enough to- <laughs> remember if there was an even amount or an odd amount of columns and i think right. five columns instead of six or eight so and i'm like well what do i do now you know and he this guy's like you you know you need to change that and i asked my boss i go do i need to change that and he goes no well ask uh you know ask claude or ward it was probably Ward and Ward didn't give a shit, you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, it's Ward's like, eh. you know, so that was that. And um, the model shop built them. And then the Tahunga built the full size ones. And then, you know, it's funny that I just didn't, I looked at them as I went through the world of motion a couple of times and it just didn't like, it didn't phase me like, Gosh, I did those, you know, mm-hmm. I, I probably what happened was it's like, ooh, I could have done a better job than what I did. You know, it, it, it was probably kind of Ernie Bushmiller level work that I did. <laughs> um, but the, then the, the hot air balloon scene, uh, I came up with an idea and I actually did like some pencil sketches for it. And um, Claude felt that the gag point was a little too... Um, ambiguous maybe or not clearly readable so the gag was that the guy is up in the hot air balloon and he's flying over a french um little town and there's a steeple the top of a steeple because you're up in the air with him right so the town the village is below you're only seeing rooftops and there's a steeple and there's a guy a french soldier with a sword and the balloon is about to hit that steeple and pop the balloon with the sword. And the, there was a goat in it and the goat's like trying to tell the guy who's oblivious. And so Claude said it was a little too busy. And uh, why don't you work on the roofs, which meant I'll find someone to get the gag. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And um, so I designed the, you know, the rooftops and, and uh, it was a little half timber job, which was something that was up my alley. And, I don't know if it was, they brought Mark back to do that, but they ended up with a guy in the pig. So it was kind of, yeah. you know, kind of my idea. But um, the original idea that I inherited was they were just going to project all these different balloons in the air. So it'd be like a collage of all these funny different um, hot air balloons through time, you know? Yeah. And then someone above my pay grade had decided that that was not good enough or you know that it needed to be another animatronic scene and not um just projections so i don't know who was making the decisions yeah because they would kind of do projections for those in-between scenes with right this was you know kind of in this was like bigger than an in-between and smaller than a typical scene yeah and you're in it for like six seconds (laughs) 
Yeah, but a memorable scene, and one one of those scenes that uh, always made it into the uh, promo videos uh-huh. or the postcards or the pan of you slides. Oh yeah, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, as you said, there there were a lot of hands in the world of motion pot. Uh, Mark Davis, Ward Kimball, Claude Coates, other people you mentioned. Was did that seem typical of the Epcot shows uh, from your perspective at the time? Uh, that there was, or was there? a real guiding voice to it all, or was it just kind of whoever you talk to do what they say? In, in some ways it was, uh, you know, a little bit of the second, you know, that, that there was a lot of people kind of assuming their position, but then there were certain pavilions that was clearly, you know, this person's domain, you know, there, there, I, some of the pavilions had, I guess, more clear organizational, you know, uh, setups. And, but you weren't really supposed to talk about it, I guess, or, you know, it's like, it's all a team effort, you know? Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Who's in charge? It's a team effort. Okay. Um, They didn't really say that, but it was, you know, some, it seemed like some of the areas had a little bit more of that than, than others. And others were like, you know, like the Mexico pavilion was Eddie Martinez's domain, Mm -hmm. you know, and it was Eddie Martinez and Ray Aragon and um, and then someone that they had brought over from a university who was like a, a anthropologist or something, and that you know that was the you know those that was the top of the pyramid at literally <laughs> for Mexico. Yeah. They had a pyramid. It was very clear who was in charge of what there, and I think it was just varying degrees. You know, w- w- you know, with the all the other pavilions, uh, land pavilion was pretty clear. Well, you know, it was. Let's see. The Land Pavilion was Rolly, but then Rolly left. So then I think it was Doris Hardoon, Woodward Hardoon, um, right? Who was the? I know she was the field art director on it. So it really became her baby, and I I designed something for her in that pavilion. I, you know, it was like an overnight thing, a phone booth, a phone area, <laughs> farmers market. Nice. Um, yeah, she was very definitely in charge of the land pavilion. So, um, and, and the seas that was, you know, not there for opening day, but it was still being in the process of being designed was, you know, a Kim Murphy, Tim Delaney production. Right. Early. Yeah. Um, spaceship birth was, I think, ambiguous and, you know, the degree of ambiguity didn't seem to have, uh, an effect one way or the other, like, you know, there were ambiguous, and ambiguously led pavilions that came out great and vice versa. So, um, <laughs> right. It's just always been, been interesting to like, to look back and there are pavilions that you associate very specifically, such as one we're about to talk about with a, a person or a creative team and others, you know, even someone who's followed Epcot pretty closely like me, uh, really doesn't know who worked on, <laughs> worked yeah. on spaceship earth it, as you said it's it's very ambiguous yeah john olim i i think that's the name that jumps out to me for spaceship earth was john olim and in the early early phases claudio mazzoli uh, uh doing the very early concept work for it and a guy named richard vaughn very talented um guy from the model shop and and became a production designer a uh, younger guy um, I associate him very strongly with it. I know there's others, you know, but yeah, 
but it was but it was still kind of ambiguous he didn't quite you know know who who if one of those persons came around and gave you a, a direction to change something that's i i think you know you'd have to like go well who do i do i listen to this person or not you'd have to <laughs> right you'd have to take that one up you'd have to elevate that you know you'd, you'd go to your boss and say so and so came by and wants to change this thing I wouldn't know on Spaceship Earth who would be the person who 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 you would yeah. go to. Well, uh, you know, you mentioned all these top level art directors, and it's clear that one of their real goals in Epcot was to bring in top name art director talent from really the golden age of Hollywood. Right, and that has been something I have just learned about in recent years. You know, all these people, everybody who worked on The Wizard of Oz. And all these people from MGM and Fox and everywhere. How did those people blend into the Disney system? Did did that seem like a smooth mixture? I kind of. They seem to be more focused on um, on paintings, you know, producing paintings, mm. producing concept art, and not necessarily in the middle of the design exercise. Um, now there were, there were exceptions to that. And, but I'm thinking of like Jack Martin Smith, I think he was working on energy and I think he was providing, mm -hmm. you know, I think he was pr providing artwork paintings and I don't know how, you know, skilled some of these people were in the dimensional world of translating things from, from paintings to, you know, three dimensions. And that's always been the, you know, the rub, right? And so um, I think Clem Hall got it. And I think he was working on storyboards for American Adventure. But a lot of the guys ended up doing artwork for the American Adventure, the, mur the final murals that you see in the show. Mm -hmm. um, Guy Deal and Walter Tyler. And I mean, Walter Tyler was there. He was another, you know, big one. And um, he, you know, and it's kind of interesting because I think the connection to some of some of them was that some of them landed at the Disney studio in the seventies because the other um, studios had just shut down completely there, either shut down like MGM or shut down their art departments. Mm. And so here's a talent like Jack Martin Smith or Walter Tyler. And now they're at the Disney studio directing, doing a really good job on Snowball Express and things like that. <laughs> Walter Tyler, you know, with right. director on Snowball Express and Jack Martin Smith was the art director on Pete's Dragon. And, you know, they were mm. still doing really beautiful sets for films that were kind of, you know, hit and miss. Um, same, I guess, with Bob Clotworthy. Uh, there was Gene Johnson. I mean, these are all kind of at different levels. You know, John DeCure, <laughs> of course. Right. Um, and John DeCure Jr. But they were mostly, you know, my impression was that they were mostly producing paintings, you know, kind of concept paintings or sales paintings. Um, gotcha. You know, that yeah. a lot of the work was used to get the um, deal, you know, that they were, they, the renderings made the rounds at the governments, different governments of the countries and the big companies and everything like that. Um, but they weren't always usable as design 
um, tools, you know, for final design. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, your big Epcot project was Journey into Imagination, a much beloved attraction. And, uh, you know, you worked on that, obviously, with Tony Baxter. Throughout your career at Imagineering, you did work a lot with Tony Baxter. Yeah. How did you two meet? And can you just tell us a little bit about Tony? I think we met, uh, if it wasn't at Disneyland, it was through a common friend of ours who worked at Disneyland, who was a very nice guy, is a very nice guy. His name's Don Bobbs. And so I think Don introduced me to Tony either at Disneyland or or somewhere. And um, we just became kind of casual friends. Like, you know, if he'd be in the park, then... Um, you know, I'd wave over to him and he'd come over and we'd chat for a while. And then it got to the point where sometimes he'd invite me along with some of his other friends to his place to watch movies because he's always had this magnificent movie, you know, state-of-the-art movie set up at his, at his home. And, um, and I'm, granted, I'm still in high school. I'm like a junior and a senior in high school. Right, And I'm trying to figure out what I want to do, you know, because I'm interested in film. I'm interested in architecture. I'm interested in animation and I'm interested in um, Imagineering, but there's no classes hardly for the things that I'm interested in. I mean, uh, film, yes, but, you know, hard to get into those classes and also expensive to get into those classes. No, there was no such thing in, in, to my understanding uh, as a production design for film class. Now, as it turns out, there were a couple, but you, without benefit of the internet, you know, how, how do you know this without, you know, writing letters to every college and, you know, my counselors didn't know anything about the entertainment business. They were trying to get everyone into aerospace and, um, you know, business, <laughs> and right. be a doctor, be a lawyer, all of that. And um, so I, you know, I went to a very good school, high school, but it wasn't the high school to go, you know, had virtually no um, connection to the entertainment world. So I, you know, I was kind of trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And I, Tony gave me a tour of WED when I was, I think, a senior, like the, um, just the very beginning of my senior year, gave me a tour of WED. And it blew my mind, you know, it's just like, wow, this is what I want to do. But I think I had already, and you know, where do you go to, to be an Imagineer? It's a question that's still difficult to answer. <laughs> uh, right. And what I tell people is you have to find something to be really good at to get your foot in the door. And then, you know, a real, in my opinion, a real Imagineer figures out once they're there, what, they need to do what they can do you know what they're able to do so that's what i did i guess my portfolio was uh, i i didn't apply i didn't raise my hand and say pick me pick me to you know work there they were um they had headhunters at disneyland because they had announced epcot and tokyo disneyland and now they needed people of every discipline and skill um you know not just artists but um a lot of architects and draftsmen, but not just that. Uh, they needed schedulers and planners and project managers and mm -hmm. book writers and all these things. And my portfolio was um, high school. I mean, I had stuff that I had done in college, illustrations that were pretty damn good, but they were interested in my drafting 
from high school because it just is like, we need draftsmen. This guy can draft. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's all it was. Um, getting back to Tony, um, he, um, you know, I think he encouraged my um, submitting the portfolio and taking the interview and taking the job. And, um, and the timing, you know, he was right. The timing was right. Um, you know, I started off doing grunt work like everyone does and should. And, um, you know, and not long, I'm doing, you know, some uh, minor design work for the world of motion. But all of a sudden, the uh, Imagination Pavilion falls out of the sky, you know, drops down. And um, because it had been something that had been kind of just showed up on the radar the year before, but not as an opening day yeah. attraction. And so there were a couple plans that had, you know, just a circle designated on it that would say images and imagination. Well, I guess just one day something happened. I think Card Walker was very good friends with, I think this is what happened, was that Card Walker uh, was great friends with Kay uh, Whitmore, I think his name was, from Kodak, mm. who was the CEO of Kodak. And so they had a lunch or something and, and Kodak got excited about this images and imagination thing. And suddenly there's a project, well, not a funded project, but there's, you know, um, to, to do some concept and feasibility work for this thing. And the reason why the timing worked out good was because um, Tony was selected to be the art director for it, the creative lead. He was very busy at Disneyland finishing up on um, Big Thunder. I remember he suddenly had to, I, I, by the way, I didn't see Tony for like three months when I first started because he was at Disneyland all the time working. At Big <laughs> right. So um, all of a sudden he shows up one day and says, how would you like to work on this um, images and imagination? pavilion um that might be sponsored by kodak that sounds like fun you know and so he put together a team of people including very braver men i mean people much more you know talented than i was at the time and experienced i guess and um so there was very braver men and bob rogers and um a great uh, mat artist from the studio named michael lloyd who who, uh, you know, was uh, apprenticed under uh, Peter Ellenshaw. Oh, wow. And um, who else was on this? Oh, Rick Harper, you know, and Steve Kirk. <laughs> All these people oh, with talent. Gosh. And then there was me, you know. And the reason <laughs> I was there was because they had no architects available. Everyone right. was scrambling to get all the other pavilions finished. And I think they were, they began a search for an architect, um, but also for show set design to, to lay out, you know, an attraction. And, um, and so it may have been through default or it could have been because they specifically wanted me to work on this or Tony specifically wanted me to work on it. But um, I'm in all of this, you know, story sessions and creative concept blue sky sessions for this. And my job really is to let, you know, begin laying it out, but also to contribute ideas. And I made attempts at doing some concept designs for some scenes and, and also for the exterior. I badly wanted to, to design the exterior because I thought, well, these guys are all good kind of interior or, or um, uh, idea sketch 
artists, but they're not really like architects um, or have an architectural knowledge. And I was not an architect either, by the way. Um, but <clears throat> having taken three years of drafting and having designed a few buildings, I did know how to um, spatially <laughs> manage uh, you know, the design of a building. And um, well, long story short, I mean, I ended up kind of designing the building, kind of. Uh, oh, yeah. They didn't necessarily warm to my um, sketches that I did for the facade of it. Um, but they, um, I'm trying to think. Oh, oh, well, so what happened was um, Dan Gouzet did a really cool sketch of the crystals that we know today, the kind of truncated trapezoidal um, pyramids, um, which I didn't know at the time until like until it opened that it was that they were supposed to be evocative of silver halide crystals. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, but everyone liked this simple marker sketch that he had done, and so then he did that famous painting of it, and. Everyone loved it. So, but someone, we needed to build a model for um, this project because there was going to be a meeting coming up with Kodak in the, you know, maybe it was the end of summer of 79, you know, in the fall and still no architect. And so they needed to build a model. And so I was the one who ended up um, kind of translating Dan Gouzet's sketch of those crystals plus whatever I was laying out, you know, from a layout standpoint into um, something that the model builders could build a model of at least. Yeah. And you know, I couldn't tell you whether the building could stand up or not, but I could, <laughs> I could give them the <laughs> drawings that they needed to build the model from. And so that's what I did. And by the time we got an architect, you know, it was kind of, you know, it was pretty much um, designed. Um, not so much the look of the 3D theater, but, you know, the layout of the ride, the way the crystals, you know, the geometry of the crystals and um, the spiral staircase, all of that, um, which I, I did not do the final spiral staircase, but just how everything laid out, basically. Right, but the yeah. difference was that I had the exit on the upper level. So the, the, the cars let you out and unloaded on the second level immediately into the image works. Makes sense. Right? Makes perfect sense. Yeah. Um, not only that, but, um, and this is probably where the straw broke the camel's back, but we had a second turntable. So the first turntable was as you know it or knew it. And then there was going to be a wrap up, you know, um, this is what you saw. And here's, you know, right. Yeah. Now go forth. Right. Makes sense. Now go forth into the image works and create. <laughs> right. Uh, and that was on the second level. Well, that was, you know, too expensive. That's where my, you know, I might understand space and architecture, but I didn't understand structure, <laughs> structural engineering. I was not a structural engineer. So we had that thing on the second floor. And I mean, just, they didn't even uh, yeah. on top or where it was. It was, there was too much. And so we had to cut out, you know, we had to do a big cut and um, cut out some money. And uh, we did that and we lost the second turntable. And, but unfortunately we lost the unloading, which I think would have been a really great thing and probably wouldn't have been that much more money, but um, yeah, we lost that. We lost the, uh, 
unload and go right out into the image works. And it was a problem um, on, you know, at first when, when it opened that people didn't know that they were supposed to go upstairs. Mm-hmm. Right. Cause I, I mean, I remember there being so much directional signage once you got out of the ride, like follow figment to the image works and, you know, figment around the corner pointing up to the, the graphic artist, the graphic designer. I didn't do the final working construction drawings, tight lines, but I did all of the uh, comps for all of those signs, follow figment. Hmm. And, um, Oh, wow. That was my punishment. Iconic work. Um, You know, my, the post opening, I was the guy left holding the bag out there and the ride didn't open on, of course, on opening day. So I was the guy left out there um, and dealing with just the punch list items from image works was huge. People didn't know where to go in the image works and they didn't know what, how to do, you know, and you you don't want to, have to rely on signs to tell you how to do things you know it should all be intuitive but not every activity up there was 100 percent intuitive or people didn't know that there was something cool behind you know the digital wall that there was a you know a stepping tones room back there right, right yeah right. because there was a lot yeah, worst of all was the magic palette which not only had some technical problems with the wands which you know they um, eventually took care of, but people didn't know what to do. There was no such thing as Photoshop or anything mm-hmm. like that. So they'd pick up the wand and they didn't know what to do with it. And it wasn't clear. It, it's, it wasn't clear. And the interface was kind of silly. It was like, a, a you know, this is when all the computer geniuses of the world <laughs> um, were debating and kind of battling about what the right interfaces um, for, you know, computer work. Right. Yeah. Balls versus joysticks versus, and someone came up with a, a, the idea of putting your finger in a slot, um, with a yeah. touch sensitive um, pad in it, I guess. And no one knew what to do uh-huh. with that. I remember him just uh, being kind of gunked once up. They, once they got to the screen and got to the menu, they didn't know what to do. So I came up with the on screen instructions for how to use the. Um, and I did this by watching and watching and watching how people were using it and behaving. This was like one of the first, you know, um, opportunities and and really, you know, beneficial beneficial opportunities to observe guest behavior and how you know how guests really work with things and do things. And so, after just watching people for a week, I came up with these instructions that I assume worked. Um, I could never judge whether they worked or not. Cause I, you know, <laughs> cause I came up with them. So. You knew too much. Yeah, I knew too much. So, but it seemed like it, it all worked. And then years later, you know, like I still curse Photoshop to this day. I hate it. I try to do as much as I can on keynote. Um, but I was telling this story to some computer guy and he said, well, effectively what you did was you, you created the first tutorial. Yeah, for yeah, for a Photoshop kind of a thing, because <laughs> it was you know a totally new idea. There was no no Photoshop or anything like that, so it was the introduction of you know in a crude way of the idea, and um, so that's kind of a weird thing. <laughs> yeah, I've seen some of those punch lists from like mid nineteen eighty three, and it's pretty wild the things you guys were having to do, and pretty much everything in the image work, everything from 
we need signs for the Lumia and yeah. this and that, or the pin screens yeah. are too sharp. Yeah. <laughs> or, or we took the you signs know, it, off of the pin screens because they said, um, put your fingers under me touches the key to creativity. We took those off. <laughs> People were getting the wrong idea, I guess. Yeah. A little too creative. Yeah. What was it like uh, finishing the pavilion up even after the park had opened? Uh, I mean, I'm working in the field is hard enough, but working in a park that's operational. Oh, it was very hard. Um, and it was, you know, we hadn't really been trained how to deal with operations during the kind of turn, turnover period. And, and there wasn't a clear turnover period is the problem. I mean, there was maybe for Imageworks and for the movie, but the ride, um, I guess it was turned over, but we still had work to do. So we had to work around the, um, the cycling of the vehicles. And I remember a lot of midnight work that we had to do. Um, I think at first, it, was, it was, let's see, they made a decision. It was probably in September, I'm guessing, that they made the decision not to open the ride on opening day to focus everything else on the rest of the pavilion. And as soon as that decision was made, and it was made only because there weren't available ride engineers to work on it. They were all on Spaceship Earth and Universe of Energy. Mm -hmm. And um, so the moment that that decision was made, the air went out of the tires <laughs> on imagination. And so um, I don't think they, it seemed like it was quite a while before they started cycling it. And so there was some time to, you know, get things finished up in there. And it was like, I'd have to go back and look at the photos because I did take, periodically I took photos in there. And um, and it seems like we got, you know, like 90% of it done right after Epcot opened. And um, had you been able to cycle the vehicles through it, you know, it would have been pretty, you know, pretty close to being done. And we did actually um, cycle it for the Kodak people in December. Oh, wow. Uh, for the official opening of the pavilion, I think. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. So while well, they were there in December, there was a big to do with Kodak in December and they got the ride on the ride. I remember that. And um, then they left and then, and I was busier than heck because um, everyone went home and it was just me and Dave Mitichello was a local out there and it was me and Dave and he was probably fixing stuff on land pavilion and other things. So I, um, I was working very closely with Tom Turley, if you remember Tom, um, a supervisor out there, he was in charge of the, I think he had the East or wait, the West side of Epcot, the side of Epcot right. land and imagination. And I worked with him on all of these operational um, signage issues. And there were other kind of operational issues too. So I was like going back and forth between, um, you know, Glendale memo wise um, with all these various different issues. And, you know, I have all those files. Those are some of the only files that seem to have made all of the different moves without oh, great. Every time yeah. I moved to another location. Paris or Hong Kong or the other side of the campus in Glendale, there'd be one less box 
<laughs> there was like a sacrifice. Right, right. Yeah. Right, right. And so um, over time, you know, I lost the Bill Martin box and I lost a few memo boxes and I probably threw some away because like, who cares? <laughs> uh, but I have the imagination. I have all, I think I have all of those memos. I, I don't think I've ever gone through and read all of them yet. Yeah. Uh, some of them every now and then, you know, maybe every couple of years I go in there and I'll read a couple, but I should do that. But uh, that's where all that, that's where all that information is. I gave all of the sketches, you know, I do everything on tissue paper or I did back then. And um, that was my Photoshop, my way of doing Photoshop. Hmm. It's tissue paper overlay, tissue paper, um, iterate, you know. So I gave all of the artwork to the um, WDI library a few years ago. And um, I don't know if they've gotten around to scanning it because it's difficult to scan tissue. So I'd love to see some of that stuff again. That's where I had all of those instructional graphics and follow figment to the image works and uh, yeah. all of that with uh pen and colored pencil i think markers i've been looking at some of the early proposals uh for the what was then called the images and imagination pavilion which right. became journey into imagination at first it seems the ride was a lot more film based uh in fact it doesn't seem to originally have had figment and dreamfinder at all can you talk a little about how that show developed over time well i don't remember too much when it was all film based um, it, as far as I know, and I was there in all of the original meetings, it was always envisioned as a dimensional, you know, uh, practical set, maybe with some, you know, film, um, occasional, you know, film effects, but, um, and, and that was a stipulation of Kodak's, as I recall, is that there would be portions of the attraction that would showcase photography, or motion photography, which is, um, you'll see that in the science section where the, you know, the slowing down of time or the uh, micro macro, you know, worlds that only the camera, only the camera can capture yeah. the micro worlds, the macro worlds, the sped up worlds and the slowed down worlds. So that was the point of that. Um, but it was, you know, for the most part, it was envisioned as a, as a dimensional practical set show. And then Figment and Dreamfinder, as I recall, came just a little bit later. You know, one of these days I got to sit down and go through all my memos and create a timeline for it, which I haven't done yet because it just hasn't been. I've just had, you know, I'm further back. I'm back in the 50s and 60s. <laughs> right. With all of my timelining and researching and everything. Um, but I would say it was probably three or four months until Figment and Dreamfinder came along. Oh, okay. You know, one thing I admire about Tony Baxter is when he gets an idea he likes, he really never gives up on it and keeps right. trying to somehow get it into the park some way or another. Right. And right. Uh, we see that in imagination. I've seen some of the, like, early around 1979 where Dreamfinder was still called Professor Marvel, which right. was the name of his character when it was part of Discovery Bay. Right. And the land pavilion, I think. Yeah, when they had, like, uh, the land keeper or something like that. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, that's right. Um, and then, you know, hauling out the crystals was probably my, you know, doing, I wasn't asked to do that, but, um, but I liked that, you know, original land pavilion that he came up with, that Tony and his team came up with. Um, I saw that when I was, uh, maybe 
still in high school and Tony gave me a tour of WED. And so they were working on that. And I thought that was just so cool. And then, you know, I was kind of disappointed when that went away for the Lamp Pavilion. So I thought it made perfect sense for um, imagination. And he was probably even avoiding doing that, you know, being overt about it, um, about bringing the crystals, you know, into the architecture. Cause I imagine he didn't want to get accused of, you know, never <laughs> letting go of something yeah <laughs> uh but i you know i was doing these these okay you know um crystal sketches and then dan guzay did his and that was the end of it um that was like okay done right so you had the ride you had the 3d movie seems to have been there from the start and there was this area called perception park which was a, right. a nice elaborate little park there in the middle right right um it was Imagination Gardens for a while, Perception Park. Um, and that was kind of the fourth element that we had to sadly give up. Um, but although the, the leapfrog fountains and, you know, there's a couple vestiges. There were a couple vestiges. I guess they're still there. Um, the pop jet fountain with figment. But that was going to be a big um, praxinoscope, I think. Oh, okay. Cool. Yeah, there were going to be all sorts of optical illusions. Um, but, you know, something had to give. So that was what gave. Right. Yeah. Well, as we said before and after the pavilion opened, you were on site for quite some time working with Pico on Imagination. And as envious as some would be uh, of you for being in the construction there, you lived one of my greatest dreams by taking up residence in Fort Wilderness for the duration of your stay. How did you find right. Fort Wilderness? Uh, can you talk about your stay there? I love that. Oh. Well, you know, I don't know how I would think about it as, you know, um, you know, in my present uh, day. <laughs> uh, although Orlando Ferrante, you know, he loved that. Uh, he, he, he was my ne next door neighbor. Um, on Bobcat Bend. I was at 2136 Bobcat Bend. Oh, wow. And, and I guess he had that. Yeah, I guess he had his trailer forever. You know, he we were yeah. all kind of newbies on the loop, but he had had that trailer there for some time. And he loved just, you know, being there. And for me, it was a step up too. you know, <laughs> you know, as a bachelor you know, living in dorms or with roommates, you know, in apartments and stuff like that. Sure. Um, this was, you know, it was great. Yeah. Uh, and I love the environment. I really, I really, really love the environment of it. Um, you know, I had a stream in the backyard and, um, you know, they were just surrounded by trees and everything was wonderful. And, um, you know, I saw little baby gators from time to time. <laughs> But I never saw any of the things that I had, you know, heard to watch out for, like rattlesnakes and even worse than that, coral snakes, which I was reading one night in a magazine. And it said that, um, you know, coral snakes are among the mo most poisonous animals in the world. And the highest con concentration of them are in Central Florida. They just <laughs> love to hide and bask under the leaves. And I'm thinking, gosh, every three or four days when I go to the laundry room, which is in the center of each loop, uh -huh, right. across all these leaves, I don't, take, I don't take the path. I take the shortcut, which is, 
right through the leaves. And so I stopped doing that and started taking the, the path, the man-made path, after I read that. And then the water moccasins. Oh, man. You know, that too, which I did see. Oof. I yeah. did see one of those one time Looking on Bay Lake. Florida life yeah. there. Yeah. But I loved, I loved living in the campground. You know, it was, it was really wonderful. What was life like on the Epcot site? Like, you know, how, how did you spend your time? I know you were probably working pretty long days, probably pretty busy. Uh, what was that life like for you just sort of day to day? Every day was um, hearing a call on the radio, responding to a call on the radio, because we used these things called radios back then. They might even still use them. I don't know, but um, we didn't have them on Hong Kong Disneyland. We just used our phones. But back then, <laughs> uh, we all had radios, and I was production forty-five, I think. And um, you know, here production forty-five from production five or Pico five or whatever, and um, there'd be some issue, some problem, some conflict, um, architecturally or structurally, with you know something that. Uh, it's about to be installed or was just installed in the wrong location. Um, and you'd run out and you'd talk with, you know, there'd be a little puddle out there. And then um, usually I would have to draw up a solution on a, um, I guess they were just called change orders, mm-hmm. of which I still have, I think, most of the ones, or at least I kept the interesting ones. Um, and you had to do that quickly. You know, that was, you couldn't like put that off on the side and come back to it three or four days later. Most of the time, there was someone waiting, you know, with a welding torch or with um, wet cement or something. <laughs> so you had to, you know, run back and and draw up a solution and then describe it, which I found very interesting. I, you know, as a communications major, I was, that was very advantageous because I learned to write instructions or directions very clearly um, so that there was no ambiguity whatsoever. And I was shocked at how many that I, you know, I'd read, I'd get one from someone else. And I'm like, this could be interpreted five different ways. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Right. Uh, So, you know, half of the, half of it was wording it so that everyone who was on the CC list would get it and not have to call you know, and as we got closer and closer to opening day, you know, the phones were ringing off the hook, radios, you couldn't even get time in the radio, you know, there was too much um, chatter on the radio. And uh, so, you know, I I would spend a lot of time, not too much time, but I mean, I would spend the appropriate amount of time on a change order or, or on a directive so that it was visually clear and verbally clear. And that was probably 80% of the job. And sometimes I was borrowed a lot on um, land pavilion, not a lot, but, you know, from time to time I'd go out to the land pavilion because it was adjacent and, and there were, you know, the coordinators um, were adjacent and, and it just seemed to be a thing that made sense. I don't remember going out on many other, um, you know, like world of motion or energy. I don't think it was, it was, you know, 90% imagination and 10% land pavilion. And 80% of the overall time was spent on 
I would say on these um, change orders or directives. I would imagine as complex a project, it was always something like that, always something popping up. Yeah. Crazy. And then I guess it would then start to, as we got to October and it was clear that the ride was not going to open, you know, that had already been decided that it would be postponed until after the year. So then with the exception of um, image works, which was still a rush to open on opening day, I transitioned into art direction or assist, assistant art direction. Um, Cause Skip Lang was really, I would say was really the, the number one guy that Tony trusted in the field. And Skip and Tony go way back, you know, to Big Thunder days. And um, so Tony always trusted Skip. So Skip was kind of the de facto, or no, he was the art director for both ImageWorks, the field art director for ImageWorks and the ride. But he had to go back from time to time to California, especially around the holidays. So as the holidays came up, I became kind of the de facto field art director. Although things weren't moving fast on the ride, um, but little things here and there and, um, you know, placement of the final um, animation and uh, some programming issues and things like that. So, yeah, as as we got closer to October 1 and then after October 1, it became more of a, well, two things, the more of a de facto um, field art director and then also all of the signage issues and wayfinding issues which were a problem in that pavilion right right well you know it's been 20 years yeah a little more than 20 years since uh, journey into imagination closed but figment is as popular as ever there is a whole new generation of fans who never even experienced that attraction but are obsessed with it i think it's fair to say there are documentaries about it. There's, you know, a digital recreation that's happening. Yeah, and, right. uh, you know, as someone who worked on that show, how has it felt to watch this sense of reverence develop around it? It's kind of interesting because um, I, you know, didn't really develop the fanboy um, attitude towards that attraction. Um, although, you know, I dearly loved it, and but it was more of a, it was more of a professional work affinity than it was, um, you know, I wasn't crazy about it like I was crazy about Pirates of the Caribbean right. or Haunted Mansion. And I didn't know whether people were, you know, I, I, it was hard for me to gauge because I would watch people once, once ImageWorks opened and then once the attraction opened, um, I would observe there were certain little points in the ride where you could hide out and watch people. And um, I did that on my breaks and because I was really interested to see how, how people would um, react to, you know, react to the show, react to certain things as we adjusted um, either dialogue or audio or lighting or some effect when you're working on it from, from the very beginning, from inception to, putting the rivets on the dream catching machine. Um, it's exciting. It's the best job in the world, but you don't ever quite get to enjoy the show the way, you know, uh, a guest with no knowledge whatsoever of what's going to happen. And I would neurose about things, you know, about, uh, you know, things that weren't quite right, didn't look quite right. 
couldn't get them ever to get, you know, there's, there's always some little effect or some little thing that just won't fix, you know, (laughs) and no matter how much time you spend on it, it still won't fix. Uh, There's some, some, uh, something substantially or structurally, um, you know, wrong with it, that it won't, unless you tear it all out and start over again. Yeah. So, um, you know, there were a couple of those in there and I, you know, I just wish I didn't know any of that. <laughs> <laughs> well, what were some of those, what were some of those unfixable? Things? Well, the, the, the fiber optics for the, um, in the dream port at the end of the dream port, you see the, um, dream finder figment putting the flowers into the big pot. And then yeah. there's this rainbow that's coming down and that's a fiber optic effect that broke, um, either before or during installation, it's snapped or cracked. And when that happens on a fiber bundle like that, that's the end of the, well, it didn't, it didn't completely kill it, but I would say two thirds of the fibers, I mm. think were, damaged and so that effect never really read plus it was overlit that whole corner was overlit and that big pollage um we had never done a gigantic pollage like that so i think we gave it a best guess as to how it could work with all of these different um, lights and wheels with the but they all canceled each other out so you didn't get the effect of it of going you know of it being completely clear or black and white or white on white and then from right to left changing into color that never that never worked Interesting. it never worked because you would have had to um not do it with a bunch of wheels so you had to have done it with a big gigantic wheel yeah or two big gigantic wheels so so that you know was always kind of a mishy-mash thing and I never liked, <laughs> you're going to kill me. I didn't like the aroma. I didn't like the smell of that um, smell it, sir. Oh, really? I, I don't think Tony did either, or maybe he was just going along with me. But I said it just smelled like everyone's got an aunt or grandma <laughs> who puts too much rose perfume on. Yeah. And he said, yeah, I know. And it's like, we got to change it. And we wanted something more like honeysuckle. Oh. or sweet you know something not quite so acrid and um <laughs> it was one of those things that either you can't do it because the the you'd have to change out all of the ducts mm-hmm. to do it and you wouldn't think that that would be that expensive but it could be that the ducts were in places that you couldn't get to yeah perhaps or it could have been some institutional stubbornness on the part of someone who was like, I made that smell. Yeah, right. <laughs> I created, you know, that's my own recipe. And by God, I'm not a change in it. It's my favorite aunt. And yeah, I, favorite aunt. <laughs> so I never knew what the real reason for that, but it was on our punch list for like four or five years. And then we just gave up. Oh, that's hilarious. Well, it's yeah, so funny. Goes, oh, I love that smell. I yeah. love it. And for me, it's, it smells like angst because <laughs> <laughs> it smells like we can't get this effect fixed. You know, that whole corner that with a little rainbow uh, flume and then the pollage and the smell, that whole corner did not come out the way it was supposed to come out. 
That's so funny. And I guarantee you, if you put a, a photo up of that scene up on Twitter, everybody would go nuts about how much they love that scene. So it's just the designer's eye from yeah, the trenches exactly. is very different. Yep. So that's why working on a project from beginning to end is, you know, it has a frustration unless you're lucky to get everything right, you know, and enough money and time to get everything right. Journey into Imagination was the last pavilion, uh, you know, on the uh, original docket to open uh, and to get started. And so it was always behind, a little behind schedule. And when you're behind schedule, you got to wing some things. And um, and so sometimes, you know, sometimes you get uh, a good hand and sometimes, you know, sometimes you get blackjack and sometimes you get just a crummy hand. Yeah. So um, we did the best, uh, you know, we made the best with what we had. And it was, you know, uh, spectacular. And I took everyone's word you know, for it over time, like, good. Oh, oh, good, you know, cause I was always worried about it. Like that just wasn't, you know, I didn't see the, the visual expressive response that I had hoped in viewing guests on the right. And I'd go to the exit and, and it was generally a good response, but you know, that last scene also, that was another one that didn't work very well for the first few years. That was the first, you know, we're on a big screen. Mm-hmm. Hey, everybody, look, we're on a big, and it didn't work very well. And it was grainy and it was um, often out of phase and out of sync. And, you know, Splash Mountain is a great um, uh, photo capture moment because everyone's going, ah! you know, so yeah. go down. Here, everyone's like going one and a half feet per second as it slows down to come in to <laughs> unload. And they're uh-huh. all kind of, uh, they don't know. They don't know they're waiting kind of for something to happen. So they all have this kind of what's happening. Right. And so that, and, but you know, um, just before that in the film reel section, the kids are going nuts because they're seeing all of the different figments up on the reel. And um, so it's like, uh, that's where that, that's where it should have stopped uh, until the technology could get there for the, for the big screen thing. Yeah. And I don't actually know how, you know, when they, when it closed, I don't know how, you know, I know that I always heard that they made improvements to it, but I never, I can't remember whether, you know, the improvements were still kind of adequate enough to make people come off the ride, um, jumping for joy. Yeah. Well, I think people were always amused, especially because it was such a new technology at the time, even though the photo wasn't of them being like excited or whatever, it, the amusement of seeing the photo right sort of more right. than made up for that and especially over the years as people knew it was coming and yeah, could right. kind of you know ham it up for the camera then right. i think that made a difference too yeah yeah i mean it definitely um having it in in the proper timing you know was number one because if you're like looking at someone else a lot of times it would be late you know, so you just go around the corner and then you're, you'd come up or too early and you didn't know to look early enough. Um, so I'm sure they got that part of it all settled, but the, um, definition, you know, the, the, the lighting, the definition, all these things have to come together so that it looks like a movie, you know, you're a star, you're in the film and not on a closed circuit, um, TV camera. Right. Screen. That's Thumbnail resolution. Out. 
Although that was that was cool at the time. So. I, and it would tile sometimes too, and uh, so yeah, it was all fun, you know. It, um, but I am so glad, you know, to begin hearing. You know, it wasn't until about five or six years after it opened that, you know, I started to hear, oh, we really love that attraction. It's our favorite attraction. And that's the one that we go back to all the time. Because, you know, in the first couple of years, everyone's trying everything out. Yeah. And there aren't very many people that have been there enough times to have, you know, developed an affinity for one particular thing or another. So, um, so it was good to begin to get that feedback. And then I was just totally busy on other stuff um, like Disney Quest and, and Europe um, that I hardly even knew they were redoing it. Right. Well, and that's a story. I mean, that's a yeah, a saga. I mean, it just shows uh, people's response to the replacement shows how big a shadow the original cast because it's something people still talk about 20 plus years after uh, oh, yeah. that they want that they want that ride back. They, they yeah. miss it a lot. Yeah. The architect Chad Oppenheim mentioned it. Uh, he's a big architect down in Miami and he's done some really amazing things. And he mentioned that as kind of like the moment where he decided he wanted to be creative. You know, when he was like 10 years old, when he went on, that's and awesome. said, I, I, I want my job to be, you know, creative. And then he'd walk around Epcot and he goes, I like these buildings. I, I want to make really cool buildings. Oh, that's neat. That's great. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of us do what we do because of Epcot, weirdly enough. a lot There are a lot yeah. of us out there. Uh, well, after yeah. Epcot, you worked on a number of projects for Disneyland. A lot of that work was trying to figure out a plan for Tomorrowland. Yeah. Uh, what were some of the things that were under consideration at that time for that area? Well, I had always been um, mesmerized by that John Hench rendering that's kind of yellowish, you know, yeah. that has uh, three levels, I think in it, at least two levels. But I think, I, I think there's, I think there's actually like three levels in it. And I just thought that was um, super cool. The, like Tomorrowland needed that energy level, you know, like how do you take Tomorrowland to the next level, build more levels. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I was working with Tony on that and they had just let a whole bunch of people go because it was 1984 now. Eight, oh, 83. I, sometime in there, I started working on Splash Mountain also. So I, I can't remember now the order. But I know that towards the end of 83 is when I began working on Splash. And then also New Tomorrowland. And so I would help Tony come up with layouts. Um, and came up with a, a few layouts uh, that had this three story deal going on. Um, and it did that by creating a lower level um, between the circle vision building and the adventure through inner space building mm. so dropped down into like a garden, you know, with fountains and stuff like that. And like a rest, a resting space. And um but that was all, you know, expensive. So that went away. And then I was coming up with other plans um, that still had that kind of second walkway that would, um, you know, be kind of around where the people mover is going. I can't remember now. I have to look at one of the plans uh, to see. I think we rerouted. There were some plans where we rerouted the people mover. 
But the big thing was putting a, a Star Wars-esque um, thrill attraction somewhere. Mm-hmm. So that was really kind of what was helping drive that. And also the fact that although it wasn't doing poorly, or maybe it was, uh, America Sings was kind of now time, you know, it was time for that to change as well. And so people began thinking about what could be put in that building and what could be put in the Mission to Mars building. Yeah. And, um, but it was not Star Tours yet. It was Star Wars in a box that replaced the Autopia, the Tomorrowland Autopia. And so I worked on plans for that and architecture for that. And, um, and then uh, we built a model of it. And then Tony took it up. I think he took the model up. He either took the model up or Ron Miller came down and we showed it to Ron because Ron was the person who was talking to George Lucas. Really? And then it went quiet for a while. And that's probably when I went a hundred percent into splash mountain. And, um, that was, uh, really kind of a cool thing, but we were looking at putting it be, uh, between the haunted mansion and pirates behind the railroad tracks mm-hmm. in an area that is currently um, occupied by um, chiller plants and uh, substations, you know, infrastructure, <laughs> big block buildings, um, utility buildings. But it didn't seem, you know, like it was an insurmountable um, thing. It looked like we could deck over it. So I came up with some plans for. And I don't think it was quite zippity doodah yet. I think it was, we were maybe still searching for what the actual story would be, but it was just, you know, how do we get um, a flume ride that is longer and a little taller uh, and more elaborate than the one at Knott's Berry Farm? Because that was uh, <laughs> yeah. gold, that was the gold standard for flume rides. And Dick Nunes had been wanting to put a, a flume ride in for quite some time and someone had done another team had done um oh what was it called something express another team had done uh, uh i think it was a bear themed flume ride and it was in bear country um i don't know if it was kind of built up on the berm behind the or maybe it was designed before bear country went in. Anyway, there was not a place for it. It was like a concept that had no place. Hmm. And, and it also featured, there were a lot of like guns in a rifle shooting. <laughs> yeah. It was kind of a, um, what do you call it? The two families that were feuding. Oh my God. Oh yeah. The Hatfield and McCoy kind and of the McCoys, thing. Yeah. And so there was a little bit of that element. And even early back then, I think there was some discomfort with that. I don't know actually why, you know, I mean, this previous team came up with something that was, you know, pretty cool, but, but um, then it was given to Tony and we wanted to make it, you know, really cool. And so we looked at this area behind the railroad tracks in New Orleans Square, and that didn't pan out um, because the cost to deck over the utilities, the big substations and everything back there um, was too expensive. Today, that would be like nothing. Yeah. But back then, that was, you know, a lot of money. And 
I think, you know, I come up with a scheme where there was a grand staircase kind of, kind of hello Dolly esque, but new Orleans, a grand staircase that went up and over the train station and then over the, um, the utilities back there and then back down. And that's where the big um, flume ride would be. And then I think we made provisions for there to be a continuation of development until it um, came all the way up to bear country and connected where that um, service gate is between the log right now and the shop. That'd be nice. And that was something that uh, also that Dick Nunes had been wanting and had been um, on a, you know, dozens of different schemes for different ideas and attractions for some time. But it, it, this, the, the, the roadblock was these utilities that had been built over time. At first, I think it was just a couple of chiller plants. Um, and that was something that, um, you know, you could build around, but then it was, you know, a heating thing. And then it's just this big mechanical um, utility yard back there. Right. And originally there was a underpass envisioned to go under the train track. And that was to have been part of the original New Orleans Square. But it was, you know, kind of narrow. It's actually still there. You don't see it. It's filled with um, utilities now. <laughs> it's filled with uh, mechanical pipes and water pipes. And But it is a utilidor. It goes under the train track from around where the uh, French market is. And then it pops back out. You can see it sometimes in some construction drawings and it's our construction photos and it's on construction drawings. And it's actually, if you had more photos of, you've seen those photos of Walt and Bill Martin and Bob Brown looking at um, the French market model. Mm -hmm. There's actually like a theater also in front of the Haunted Mansion, a stage. And if you were to have more photos of that model, you would see this tunnel, this ramp that goes down around the French market and then under the um, train tracks. Oh, that's wild. And they were envisioning another area at the time that would go back there or a, a continuation of New Orleans Square, which oh, they did not get the model of, but it was a provision. It was a provision. And then, and then over time that got filled with utilities. And so that was out. <laughs> and so we had instead this double, I think I worked on different plans where there'd be a, a big grand staircase and then a birdcage elevator that would take you up uh, for, the, for the disabled. And it's funny because people would like go, well, we can't have a, you go up a staircase and over, you know, it's like you have a staircase that goes up to the train station on Main Street, and this isn't even high. This doesn't even go. This doesn't even need to be that high. Yeah. <laughs> um, and they go, oh, I guess you're right. You know. And plus, we have an elevator. You know, and um, which we did that in Hong Kong Disneyland. We have we put a little elevator so you could go up to the Main Street train station. But at any rate, that site did not work, and someone suggested we put it in the meadow next to small world and tony and i didn't like that idea and then someone suggested we put it where discovery bay would you know was still being kind of thought of going and tony didn't like that <laughs> that didn't leave too many spots left and so tony kind of gave seemed like he gave up on it for a while and i said well before we close this thing out let me look at 
one more thing. Um, the, because now I had some ride track layout experience and, um, and I always liked, you know, I always look at Pirates of the Caribbean as another gold standard of packing, you know, a 10, you know, pounds into a five pound bag. Mm -hmm. uh, and with that, you know, very sinuous, circuitous ride layout, how they were able to get it how they were able to optimize that so much. So that was an inspiration. So I looked at that berm between Haunted Mansion and Bear Country and went about seeing if there was a way to put it on that berm because there was a little bit of berm within the tracks, but there was a lot of that berm on the other side of the tracks that was unused and unseen. And, you know, you look, I kind of overlaid other things on top of that berm and went, well, you could put like two dark rides on that, you know, berm back there that we take for granted. So I started doing layouts for that. Um, and it was really tricky because you had to get over the train track. You had to get under the train track. There were all these immovable objects. There was also the Haunted Mansion show building. Um, and the exit to the Haunted Mansion, which was, you know, precariously close. So that's what I did. And, you know, we came up with a, a 12 minute, 12 minutes was our goal. So that we would like, we it's five more minutes than the Knott's Berry Farm log ride. It has one more flume or one more drop, I should say, one more drop. And the drop is going to be 50 feet. And I think we ended up making it. 54 or 55 feet so that it would be the tallest one in the world or the country. And oh, we put a dip drop on it. That's where Bruce Gordon and I had an argument about that because for some reason, because Bruce always likes the fun things, but he didn't like the dip drop. And Tony sent us out to Bush Gardens in Florida because they had a dip drop on their aero development designed flume ride. And so we made a business trip out there just to ride on that thing. <laughs> and uh, I loved it. And I don't know why Bruce didn't like it, but he didn't like it. And then we got back and Bruce said, I don't like it. And I said, I like it. And I don't know why Tony, um, you know, went, he agreed with me. <laughs> That's I, all he needed. I think I just said, I thought it was neat. <laughs> yeah. No, you kind of go weightless for a moment and it's a surprise. Yeah. And Bruce, I don't, maybe it was because it, you know, it kind of um, went against the rules of a, of a log flume. It suddenly is not in the water anymore. It's now a, a, you know, a coaster on rails, on dry rails. And it makes a loud, you know, clattery sound when you go down it and then back up. But um, at any rate, we kept the dip drop. So we had three drops, including a dip drop and the tallest drop in the world. And there was just barely enough room for that, um, for that big drop. Uh, either had to make it even taller, which would have been more money, or we had to push it more into the river, into the rivers of America, which I didn't want to disrupt, you know, kind of the sanctity of the rivers of America. So it goes out a little bit into the rivers of America. Um, and then I worked side by side. They brought in a, um, a hydro mechanical, engineer, which is what you need for a log flume ride. And, and Disney had never done this kind of flume ride. The pirates in the and small world are a different animal because they're flat level. Although pirates, you go down to another level, but 
one, you know, on one level or the other, you're flat and you rely on um, underwater water jets to propel the speed of the boats, to propel the boats and also to regulate the speed. So you can say, I want it here. I want it to be three feet per second or, you know, I want the whole thing to be two feet per second. Whereas a water flume ride, you don't get to necessarily call the shots. That's physics and right. gravity and water dynamics. And so there were some things I didn't know <laughs> about that. Um, like, you, you know, you can't, you can't go five miles an hour. I can't remember what the exact, there was some mystery spot um, in the uh, miles per hour continuum that the, um, that the boats wouldn't go. So you could go one foot per second, two feet per second, and then you jump to seven feet per second, just the way water works. And so um, we got the guy who invented the log ride to help me with this. Nice. And he originally worked for Aero Development. His name was Don Newfarmer. And he um, was the hydro engineer on, on all of the water rides for Aero, including Small World and Pirates and the flume that they did for Texas, um, whatever it was called back then, Astro World, and then it became Six Flags, I think. And then they did a couple more log rides. And then he left, Don Newfarmer left Aero to form his own company or to not to form his own company, but he went to be like the chief engineer at this other company called Odie Hopkins. So he was with this company called Odie Hopkins. He and I sat in my office for two weeks working this thing out. So I, you know, I didn't really learn trigonometry or anything like Bob Gurr did for the Matterhorn. Uh, Don would just say, no, you can't do that. Or yes, you could do that. <laughs> um, and, you know, he'd give me the proper run outs after a drop, you know, everything's relative to everything else. So, you know, if, if the drop is 45 degrees and 50 feet high, these are the requirements for that. So there were all, you know, all sorts of little gotcha things that I had no awareness of, you know, I thought it would be just like designing small world or pirates where you can make it do anything you want, as long as you're uh, obeying the turning radius. Exactly. So, yeah, it, it was a different animal, but um, I think I still have, you know, I, I had a lot of iterations of those drawings, but I think I have some left of those sessions where I, I did, you know, the, the plan views and the elevations in the sections um, of the entire track, putting the elevation, you know, 132 feet, 135 and a half feet, et cetera. Um, and locating all the center points for the radii and everything. It looked like an engineer's drawing more than a, you know, set person's drawing. Yeah. It's just wild to think about how different that would be. Like, I don't think of that as a long time ago, but today, if they did a project like that, you know, it would all be in like unreal engine or something, you know, the team of physicists and engineers figuring it all out, you know, rendering it in 3d well, to see how it was done. Well, it, now, now we can do the, you know, the render it in 3D and the real-time simulation, but it still starts on pretty much on tissue paper. Mm. So for the most part, um, the ride layouts are, are imagined by um, people in either show set design or show design. And then they work side by side with someone in the ride engineering department. Now, sometimes um, there either aren't the creative people available 
from show design or um, the show producer wants the ride engineer to come up with the layout. So that happens sometimes too. Oh, okay. That's interesting. You mentioned the Star Wars in a box uh, where the Autopia was. What kind of ride was that? Was I assume that was before it was a simulator. Was it some kind of dark ride? No, it, it, it was a roller coaster. Oh, okay. And it was going to use um, linear induction for the launch because Knott's had opened their Montezuma's Revenge um, at Knott's Berry Farm in the late 70s. And so Disneyland, it was funny. There was still kind of this friction between, um, and it wasn't between WDI and Disneyland. It was between people who thought that Disneyland shouldn't have that kind of thrill level. Mm. And so some of those people were at Disneyland. Some of those people were at, at WED. Um, but we were looking at something that would have inversions in it. And I remember just hearing, we're never going to ever, ever, ever do inversions. And okay, if we're never going to do inversions, what do we do to amp up the thrill? So, so I had it on a launch, you know, I had it uh, launching up this big machine that looked like it was going to um, catapult you. It was kind of dumb. I mean, I look at the, <laughs> I, it's a neat piece of architecture that makes no sense whatsoever, especially in the Star Wars world. Plus, we were designing this to be able to switch over in case we couldn't get the deal with Lucas. So it could just become a, you know, a space ride, another yeah. space ride uh, through the planets or something. Um, so, so uh, and I think I did a rendering. I, I know I did a rendering of it because I have a copy of the rendering. And um, the idea was that it was, you know, it was kind of like the canon, I guess, on Discovery Mountain or on Space Mountain in Paris. It was a precursor to that done in an 80s, you know, 1980s style uh, where lights would strobe, you know, as the thing. It was kind of like also a little bit like the Mighty Microscope, you know. So oh, yeah. yeah. It was it was kind of laser lasering you into outer space. Um, so that went on for a while and John Stone did some renderings, I believe of it. And I think he showed, you know, he was, he was, um, doing renderings that showed inversions on it. And so we were getting feedback one way or another on that, but that went on the, you know, temporarily, momentarily on hold while we figured out is this going to be with Lucas and also, now Saul Steinberg is raiding the company and all of that. So um, almost everything comes to a halt except for Splash Mountain, which I'm working on with Bruce and John Stone. Then, you know, we go into the, the end of 1984, the autumn of 1984 and all of that fun. And then Michael and Frank join us in uh, September or, or October. And I think by then we had done the model for finished the model for Splash Mountain. We had done the different ideas for Star Wars. Um, oh, maybe by then the Rediffusion simulator had come on, you know, as an idea. Mm -hmm. And so I think, I can't remember at what stage Star Wars was at when Michael, um, I think, I think we were talking, I think it was the simulator by then. So sometime in 1984 earlier, it had switched over from being a roller coaster to a simulator, 
but still no deal with with Lucas for sure. It's interesting. A lot of these projects you're talking about uh, got their start before Eisner, but are thought of as Eisner projects because you know the deals got done and things happened when he came in. You came in at the tail end of the Wed pre-Eisner era. Uh, what was it like being there at that time during this changeover? Well, it was kind of quiet because they had let so many people go. And I don't know what the real, real numbers, but what I always hear is it went from 3,000 to 400. Mm. And so there was a little bit of that, what am I doing here, you know, kind of a thing. And then I realized, well, I, I'm, I'm making about the same amount of money as a ride operator at Disneyland. So that's what I'm doing there. <laughs> I'm cheap. I'm good and I'm cheap, I guess. So, um, so it was, you know, it was weird and there were, you know, all the kinds of rumors about all the, you know, all of the different outcomes that could happen. Um, it was lacking in energy. You know, there was kind of this, like, you know, the morale was not so good and the future was in question. And so it was a weird time. And I was busy, you know, uh, if it wasn't Splash Mountain, it was Tomorrowland or some, you know, um, iteration of something going on in Tomorrowland. We were always doing something. Uh, there was always some idea. And I, that was probably about the time I started working on the onboard audio idea for Space Mountain, too. Oh, wow. So, uh, but that was, that was a private, pro that was kind of a passion project that I would do on my spare time. That was not a uh, project that had a job number. So that was about it. And then Michael and Frank came on. And then I remember it wasn't long after that, that I was sent to Disneyland to work on, you know, at the WDI office there, the wet office that was um, run by Kim Irvine. There were all sorts of goofy proposals, you know, going on at that time. Cause now uh, Michael and Frank were on board and, and just, you know, ideas would come from every direction. And, uh, you know, I think they knew someone at Hard Rock Cafes. I can't even, you know, I used to remember the name of the person who started that. And I can't even remember that now. And so they were pondering some deal with Hard Rock. And so I was um, sketching up ideas for where Hard Rock would go in Disneyland. <laughs> wow. Uh, so one of them went, I think there was a version that would go in um, Mission to Mars <laughs> that was not doing any business. And then there was another version I had up by Small World um, that was done in kind of, you know, um, in that style of the facade of Small World. Wow. And I know. So there were all these weird, you know, weird requests like that. Oh, Videopolis. So I, you know, because I guess I was for a short time, I was the youngest person there, or at least maybe in show design. Because I was, you know, I was 25 in 1984. So, so I was, uh, I was put on um, Videopolis, and I was kind of, you know, mixed about that because I always wanted to do something in that meadow next to Small World that was, you know, very Disney-esque. Very, I mean, you think of like the forest. Every classic Disney film has a forest. And it where you'd there'd be a scary part of the forest and there'd be a beautiful part of the forest. And I imagined doing um Sleeping Beauty or Aurora's house in the tree, you know, oh, yeah. and all these wonderful things that you could do. 
And now we've got to do a dance floor, a dance club there. And I, that was the time when I was going to dance clubs and, and, you know, I was really into the eighties new wave music and all of that. And, um, so I was working on that and coming up, you know, with ideas and, and we envisioned a lot of really great special effects. Um, some of them eventually made it in and, and others didn't. Uh, and I did a logo for it that it became another kind of, uh, issue, I guess, because, you know, WED doesn't do logos, not even the graphic department, the, you know, the logos is done. Logos are done by marketing. Oh, okay. With, with the exception of, you know, the, the wonderful logos that were done for Epcot, um, by Norm Inouye and, and many others in the, um, graphics department there. So that, that was an exception to the logo rule. But other than that, logos were done either at the studio by marketing or at Disneyland by marketing. And here I had come up with a logo for Videopolis that some people really liked and some people didn't like. And so I kind of became a, a, an annoyance, I guess, to the um, people, in, I guess to the people in marketing and to the head of entertainment, but everyone else in entertainment told me that they preferred my logo. <laughs> like, you know, the, the, um, the directors and the managers, but it was the vice president who didn't like it. And it could have been because the marketing people, oh, and he was, well, that's, yeah, that's why. Cause he was also marketing. He was marketing and entertainment at the time. And my logo had too many colors in it. So they came up with their own logo. So there were two logos. So the, the big marquee for it was my logo. Oh, wow. And they came up with a little bit of merchandise for it. But what you saw on the newspapers and on TV and everything was the marketing logo for it. So that was probably my entry into being a pain in the butt. Um, <laughs> All for Videopolis. Oh, and then Star Tours. And I did the facade for that. This was when we took out the Mary Blair murals. Right. Sawi. <laughs> you are the culprit. Hey, who knew? Uh, well, I don't think I was the I don't think I was the champion for taking them out. I was sure. the soldier who had to figure out, but I wasn't in complete disagreement because because anything that is about 20 or 25 years old. Now, I think it's a little different now, but because things are much more eclectic now, but back then things were much more, you know, went in and out of style quicker and more distinctively. And so by the eighties, people were, more people were making fun of the murals or dissing the murals than they were saying we needed to keep them. Yeah. And uh, in my mind, I just thought, well, you know, Mary and all those people were smart enough to know that, it would be time to do, you know, to update this, especially if Star Tours is going in it. Um, so, sorry. Um, no, I mean, I think it makes perfect sense. I, I mean, I totally see that decision at the time. And, you know, you, if it happened today, you'd want to see them, you know, preserved in some way at the family museum or something. But, yeah. I mean, if you're trying to make a Tomorrowland, that, will, that was always kind of an odd fit there anyway. It kind of was. I mean, I kind of thought they were odd as a, you know, as a young kid when they went in. Um, I mean, I thought they were neat, but they did kind of, as I became 11 years old, 12 years old, 13 years old, they're kind of like, do these really belong here? 
oh, I'm going to get hate mail. But I did try to, I did try to um, figure out a deal. In fact, we estimated the cost of saving them and and lifting that whole because you can't. There's no way you can delaminate them. They're it's cement. Yeah, um, they're bonded forever against. Um, you know, against a stucco surface. So you'd have to lift the whole wall out. Um, you could probably section it, section that off. There'd be some damage to some um, of the tiles and you could repair those. And I thought, you know, give them to a museum or to a children's hospital. Chalk is right down the street mm-hmm. in orange. Um, and so they did do an estimate and it was like a hundred, I don't know what it was. It was, you know, it's, it was expensive for a project that didn't have a lot of money for the facade because I was asked to do this facade and here's the budget for it. And so lifting that thing out and donating it, but they could have gotten the tax, you know, return, but that was all factored in and and it didn't factor out, you know, to, um, to the people in charge. So that was out. We were going to lift it. And so they did try to, um, you know, they, they punched holes through it. The bottom half, unfortunately, had to go because we put doors in there. Um, and then the upper half, they only knocked out where they needed to put in a, a lateral structural support. So there's like eight or 10 holes. Mm-hmm. Um, but most of it is still, you know, from eight feet on up is still there. Yeah, that's good. Someday. Someday, I mean, I, I like the idea of you know donating them, if if possible, um, to a museum or something, or or doing something archaeological where you could see all the different layers of. I mean, that doesn't work with Star Tours, but you know maybe in some other concept of Tomorrowland, because the the green steel from 1955 is still in there, and the white steel that they added as awnings a year or two after that is still there. And then the orange steel from 1967 is still there. And then I can't remember black steel from 1986 or 87. So there's all these layers of archeology. span You know, if you cut a section through that, it would be kind of interesting. Yeah. The neon Mickeys, I did those. That's one of the few things, I guess one of my few, you know, everything's a team effort. And, um, but every now and then you get something that you can kind of take a little more ownership than other things. And so, um, that was when I really took for granted. It's like, this is a temporary fix for this facade because we don't have very much money. And I already spent, you know, the facade that I conceived for star tours was more expensive than they had, um, budgeted for. So I basically used up the budget on the star tours part of that building. And there wasn't much left for the, it was called the character shop and Disneyland wanted to change the name. So that was fine. And, but what could we do? That wasn't going to be very much money. And they said, just do a really nice marquee. You know, we'll take the character shop marquee down, do a really nice marquee. And I thought, well, no one's going to, you know, one marquee, another marquee, big deal. So I thought about neon, and this was about the time that a couple of um, the art of neon books came out at Rizzoli and other places, and it was starting to make a comeback, uh, you know, in a in a kind of postmodern uh, way. And 
but I, all I had to do was say neon and I got just the most, um, disgusted looks from people because back then neon was like the liquor store, the massage parlor, you know, the bowling alley, um, all people could think of is like vacancy, no vacancy. And, you know, there's three colors, red, orange, and blue, you know? And it's like, no, no, there's like, they're doing incredible things now with neon. And so I brought these books in and showed them and they're like, all right, you know, play, play away. And so this idea of the neon Mickeys, you know, cause I thought doing something animated would be really cool. It's kind of like celebrating the old fashioned animated neon signs, but in a new way. So I, you know, I sketched out that animation very crudely. You know, I think I, I can't remember who I was trying to please on this because I don't remember interfacing with Tony on the neon Mickeys. I think I was interfacing with Randy Bright on it. Oh, wow. And um, maybe Tony was just too busy. It, it seemed like I had no boss. And then when I drew something up, suddenly there were three people telling me, no, no neon. You know? <laughs> Uh, but I drew up this Mickey thing, and then with the you know with the guy there with all the different colors, I th I brought Randy or whoever I would I think it was Randy over and said, look, this is not going to be the liquor store down the street. You know, this is not going to be this cheesy uh, Harbor Boulevard looking thing. You know, this is going to be beautiful. It's like okay, all right, it better be you know kind of thing. But the, but someone looked at my lousy animation drawing and said, but we have to have a professional do that. So they, um, they sent it over. They sent my sketch over to the studio and had Mark Hen do it. Oh, okay. And uh, so he, he tightened it up. He did the cleanup. I thought he reanimated it until someone called to my attention. You know, I posted it. I posted my draw. I have both because no one wanted the, the, you know, the t they don't like tissue paper or they didn't at the time. So none of the art morgues accepted your, your tissue. And I, that was bad for me because everything I did was on tissue. That was my Photoshop, right? <laughs> um, that's how I could, you know, iterate and evolve it from the first idea to the last idea was layers and layers of tissue. So, um, so a lot of my stuff never made it into the art library because it's on tissue. So I took that home and I, and, they didn't want the Mark Hen one either because it was on tissue. So I have both of them and I posted them because I didn't think anyone cared about the neon Mickey thing. I was shocked when I came back from uh, Hong Kong, I think, you know, there was a period where I didn't go to Disneyland for maybe a year or two because of all the travel and working on every, on all these other projects. And I no longer lived in Orange County. I'm out here on the you know West side of Los Angeles County and so it may have been that I didn't go to Disneyland for a year or two. And I went after a very, very long time. And maybe I hadn't even been in Tomorrowland for like four years. And I just assumed it was that that neon Mickey thing was going to be gone by then. I, I, I assumed it was gone after the redo of Tomorrowland. <laughs> uh, Tony worked on. And um, so I was shocked that it was still there because I liked it. <laughs> but I didn't know if anyone else liked it. Yeah. You are not alone, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't, you know, another thing that I, you know, pre-internet, you didn't get feedback about. And so when I posted um, a picture of 
my sketch and Mark Hen's sketch, you know, I got all of this interest in it. And then someone pointed out that they thought that my, I haven't, I have not examined it, but someone thought that they had either kept a lot of my poses or that it was mostly still my poses cleaned up by Mark. But my impression was that Mark, you know, uh, did more than that. So I've got to take a, a closer look at it. So that wraps up part one of our interview with Tom K. Morris. Uh, Michael, we have so much more to get to. That's right. Uh, after this, man, Tom's got a couple of whole other theme parks to work on. He's got a book to work on, and we're going to talk about it all. That's right. This is pretty cool to hear uh, these, uh, man, uh, What's coming up next are things I had never heard much about the making of. So that's cool. Yeah, it's an interesting time we're going into working on Disney Studios Paris, which is a real low point, I think, for Imagineering, as, as Tom says. And, you know, his work on Hong Kong, which is pretty amazing. And Disney Quest, a project which never gets talked about. And so it's fun to find out a little bit about that background. That's right. Okay, Michael, it's that time of the episode where we check in with our Patreon and see if anyone's signed up. Has anybody signed up this month? Yeah, I'm really excited. We've got some more members of the old Order of the Chili Bowl who are going to be checking in on our monthly live stream and all that fun stuff. We've got Caleb, Keith, and our friends at Dateline Disneyland. Wow, that sounds really official. That is very official. Stop by and see what... Uh, Andy's writing up over there on Mice Chat. Uh, it's so exciting to see him join. So, yeah, our Patreon is a great way to get our content early, to get some extra content, and to get that monthly live stream if you join, if you so desire. So, yeah, it's a lot of fun. Check us out at patreon.com slash progresscityusa. That's right. We thank you all for contributing to that it's makes a big difference in our lives so we thank you for that and uh, if you want to get in touch with us you're not on the patreon you can email us at podcast at progresscityusa.com uh, i have forgotten to mention the past few episodes we're on twitter uh, michael's at progress city usa i'm at jeff g crawford and uh we're ready to hear your suggestions or comments or it's been cool to hear from people who, you know, have memories or stories from the parks uh, getting in touch with us. So we love those as well. Yeah, we just got a, a feedback. You know, we're not we're not doing a mailbag today, but got an email from Andrew, I believe, about the Disneyana store that we mentioned on our last Fantasyland episode and giving us a little insight, memories of that. That's right which I'm envious of those memories, but thanks for writing in. So uh, we will be back next week with Tom K. Morris and part two of that interview. And so until then, we hope you all stay safe. And from all of us to all of you, we thank you for listening. We'll see you here next week. <laughs>